0: But now let's turn to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 11, and we will read verses 1 through 44. Let us bow before the Lord our God. Our Father, we turn to a passage that is very familiar to most all of us. It is very dear to us, for it speaks of Christ as our resurrection life. It is dear to us because of loved ones who have gone before us. It is dear to us because of the promise of our own resurrection. It is dear to us most of all because it speaks of the risen Christ. And it is dear to us because it is the Word of God given to us. And Heavenly Father, as we see the Lord Jesus strengthening the faith of believers and eliciting faith in this passage, we pray that not only will the faith of each believer be strengthened as we read this text and proclaim it today, but that Christ proclaimed will also by the Spirit of God enter into the heart of someone or someones that are here today who do not know the Lord Jesus and that they would be saved from their sins for time and eternity because it's all of grace and all dependent upon the once crucified and risen Christ. Hear our prayer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin with verse 1, John's Gospel, chapter 11. The Word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. The last sign before going to the cross. As we read John's gospel, there is the sign of the water turned to wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at the pool, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the blind man referenced in this passage, but now the greatest of the signs before going to the cross, the raising of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, from the dead. We turn to this passage and we first see the need, the deep, real need Emotional need. In verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They appeal to Jesus. They know that they can. This is a family dear to him, close to him. This is Mary who anointed the Lord with, with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. This was his dear friend Lazarus. They counted on his love. They counted on his sympathy. But it's remarkable that we find that in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Jesus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved them, he did not come, not then. Because he loved them, he delayed. Are you ever perplexed by the Lord's delays? That here's my need, Lord. It seems so deep and desperate to me, and yet I do not see how how you're acting in my life, how you are responding to my prayers. Do you believe that his delays are because he loves you, believer? Because it serves his greater purpose? Because he will glorify himself? In not coming, not now, not in the way perhaps we might like him to come? So that when life seems to unravel for us or death occurs, do you believe that despite appearances, Jesus is in control? And so he delays. And in his delay, he shows that he is the master over death itself, as we see in this entire passage. And it also shows that He is the master of circumstances. He knew that the delay would bring glory to God. This was God's purpose and plan from eternity past. The Lord's timing is always right. He never errs. He is never uncertain. He never makes a mistake. The Lord knows what He's doing. But the disciples are puzzled by His readiness to return to Judea. Why? We have been in Judea, and only recently they tried to stone you. So when he finally says, let's up and go to Judea, they just don't understand. And Jesus will do what the Father calls him to do, which is the purpose there in verse 9 when he speaks of walking in the light. He will walk in the light. He will do what the Father has appointed for him to do. He will do what is ordained for him to do. They are puzzled by his readiness to return to Judea because they have not yet fully understood what the cross was all about and that it is to the cross that he must go to be a sacrifice for their sins and ours. And they also are puzzled by their inability to see what only he could after all see. He called Lazarus' death sleep. The disciples did not understand. Well, Lord, if he's only sleeping, then he will wake up. Jesus then was playing to them. Jesus intended to strengthen the faith of his disciples and the faith of others. And he says in verse 15, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Jesus saw what only he could see, what they could not see— underscoring for you and for me that we are called in our Christian lives to walk by faith and not by sight, to rest on the promise of His Word, to believe what He has revealed to us, whether we understand what He is doing or not, how His promises relate to our circumstances, our pain, our suffering or not, because God is all about His own glory. And yes, He loves His people. Thomas' response about Bethany going back to this area where it's obvious that they will attempt to take the life of the Lord again is rather revealing, don't you think? He says in verse 16, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Thomas is a very interesting character, isn't he? Now, what do we find in This is bravery, He doesn't say, let's go hide somewhere. If this is where he wants to go, we're going to go with him. This is bravery. It also shows real commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as a disciple, but it also is thoroughly pessimistic. It is not filled with a great deal of faith, it seems to me. And ultimately, that will be dealt with when we come to the 20th chapter on some occasion, and we see that that Thomas who refused to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he, he, until he, he saw for himself and put his own, his own hands in the, in the hands of the, the wounds of Jesus and the wound in his side. Only then will I believe. And when Jesus showed himself to him, he fell down and said, My Lord and my God. Within his heart he bowed before the Lord and confessed his full deity, and he believed in the resurrected Christ that pessimism will go away. Has it gone away for you? Is the truth and reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ so filling your mind, your heart, and your life that rather than having a pessimistic attitude toward life, you have a biblically realistic approach to life, knowing that the Lord is in sovereign control and that He is bringing all things to its appointed end for His own glory, and that death, even death, is under his sovereign sway. Well, that's the need. Then we come, secondly, to the sisters. There's Martha and Mary grieving over the death of their beloved brother, Lazarus. And Martha goes out and met Jesus as he entered Bethany while Mary grieved at home at this point. It seems that when she meets Jesus that there's a kind of mild rebuke or maybe a reproof of some kind when she says in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why did you take so long, Lord?' If you had just come when we sent the message to you, Lord, then you would have been here and my my brother would not have died. And so there seems to be this mixture all through this passage with Martha of grief and also of faith, but a faith that needs strengthening, a faith that needs to grow just as your faith does and so does mine. In verse 23, we see Jesus saying to her, your brother will rise again. And D.A. Carson calls this a masterpiece of planned ambiguity (laughs) because, yes, he will rise again on the last day. She acknowledges that, but he's about to rise again to be resuscitated to life, and she does not know that that will be the case. Martha assents to the truth of the resurrection and says in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, but look at verse 25. Are not these the most precious of words? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? When you think of your own death, when you are there by the grave of your Christian loved one, do you believe this? So the great I am's of John's gospel, Jesus has said, I am, speaking of himself as Jehovah, Exodus 3, I am that I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life i am the true vine i am the living god but who can be denominated the resurrection and the life but jehovah himself in all of the i am statements he is there's self-disclosure he's revealing who he is but surely even much more clearly now at the grave of lazarus he will He will reveal who He is. Only God can be the resurrection and the life. And Jesus says to them, trust in Me. I am Jehovah who can raise the dead. Indeed, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this stands out to me from the text? I think we do see Martha's faith in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We see her faith. The Greek tense for believe here is a perfect tense, indicating a true faith, a stable faith, a solid faith, a lasting faith. Do you have that kind of faith? A true, lasting, genuine, saving faith in Christ? Nonetheless, as one of the 19th century commentators, Godet, said, there is more vivacity than light in her faith at this point. More light is about to come, Martha. It's about to come. And now there's Mary. Mary is at home, and she's with those who have come to comfort the family. And the Jews have nothing to offer but sympathy. They can't raise the dead they don't understand the gospel. In verses 19, 31, 36, 37, we see that they're fulfilling their call to show sympathy, but that's all they have is sympathy. That's all they can express. It will take Jesus Christ who came into this world, who will raise Lazarus from the dead, indeed, who will go to the cross and be raised from the dead in order to demonstrate what we read in Second Timothy one ten that Jesus abolished death and brought life, and immortality to light through the gospel. And they are about to get a real taste of what that means, that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Jesus asks for Mary, and she quickly leaves the house to meet him, and is followed by those who are in the house comforting, and they think that she's going to the tomb to grieve, and so they're going with her to grieve and to sympathize. It's an emotional meeting when she meets the Savior, and her greeting was similar to that of Martha's. You noticed, I'm sure, in verse 32, that when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.'" The same thing, the same idea, mild rebuke, rebu- reproof probably, "'If you had been here, Lord, just why didn't you come earlier?' And then, in this passage, as Jesus is there with Mary, we see something of the depth of Jesus' own sorrow. Now this is astounding. He is the sovereign creator, become man. He is the sovereign redeemer. He's not taken by surprise by any of this. He's sovereign over life, he's sovereign over death. And yet he grieves. And his, his grief is deep. And those around him were uncontrollable in their sorrow. Jesus is grieved, but he's thoroughly self possessed. But nonetheless, it's so deep. You know, sometimes the emotion that fills the heart of a believer is not something uncontrollable, it's deeper. It's just deeper. And certainly, we see that that's true of Jesus and His true humanity. And in verse 33, we have two words, deeply moved and greatly troubled. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and in in the Jewish way at the funeral uh, and at at the grave, it would have been uncontrollable, undoubtedly. He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. Now, deeply moved is actually literally the snorting of a horse, and it's a word that is used rarely to mean anger or indignation. And then the word troubled that we find here is the same word that you'll read, for example, in chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Same word. Because he took our trouble and he took our need into his own sovereign hands and heart. And then we come to verse 35. Jesus wept. Translated by Leon Morris, Jesus burst into tears. Because his sorrow, as the man of sorrows, he understands with more depth than Martha or Mary or anyone there could have understood. He understood this breach with God through sin. The horror of it. How awful it is. Return for a moment to verse 33. We might translate it, he was deeply angered and noticeably distressed. Why was he angry? Well, Jesus is there with those who are weeping and wailing. And in verse 38, he's deeply moved again as he came to the tomb. And he looks over the scene and takes it all in with his senses, and he looks over the tombs and the graves, and he is life himself looking at the great enemy, death. And within his heart, he's wrathful against it. He is wrathful against the miseries of mankind that resulted from the disobedience of the rebellion of the first man, Adam. And you know his theanthropic suffering, his suffering as the God man, God incarnate, was vicarious too. So that he is able, as your mediator, to sympathize with you in your deepest needs and wants. Stand in awe. The Creator comes to the grave of a friend and weeps with compassion and feels inward rage. But sometimes there are those who might feel inward rage who want to help, but they have no power to help. This is compassion, but this is omnipotent compassion. He not only can have compassion, he can do something about the issue and he came into this world to do that very thing. This is omnipotent compassion from the heart of the man of sorrows who came to do what we now find him doing, thirdly, at the tomb, at the tomb. Now, remember verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And now we come to verses 38 through 40. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "'Lord, by this time there will be an odor, "'for he has been dead four days.'" Jesus said to her, "'Did I not tell you that if you believed, "'you would see the glory of God.'" Jesus is not going to say, "'Remove the stone from the tomb for no reason.'" Just obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Again, Godet, the French commentator, says, "...in the presence of the manifest signs of dissolution already commenced, Jesus exhorts her to a supreme act of faith by giving her his promise as a support. She has already climbed the arduous slopes of the mountain, only one last summit to reach, and the spectacle of the glory of God, the glory of life triumphant over death, will display itself to her eyes." And so Jesus prayed, I thank thee, Father, that thou always hears me, will hear me, and, and the people around him heard, and that's why he prayed out loud, because he wanted them to hear. And maybe I can be excused for putting it this way, but I'm sure that after telling, telling them remove the stone, that after praying, and there would have been silence, that there in that graveyard, there's dead silence. All is quiet. All the weeping, all the wailing, and there's the voice of command. In verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In chapter 5 of John's Gospel, in verse 25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We read in that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, "...the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise." The dead in Christ shall rise when they hear the voice of the archangel. Merrill Tenney argues that it's in an archangel's voice. That is to say, it's a descriptive genitive, not a possessive genitive, meaning not whose voice, but what kind of voice. We shall see. In any case, the voice of Jesus will raise the dead. Jesus' voice of command surely points ahead to a greater day than even this one here in this text. And he sets over against death the power of his word. And the results, Lazarus came forth. He was supernaturally by the power of the word of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, raised and brought to the mouth of the tomb. Now I don't know how he was brought to the mouth of the tomb. I've contemplated that a good bit this week. A minor point, but you sometimes think about it, don't you, when you're working through a text? So, what the the, the, the Jews did when they embalmed was not like the Egyptians where they removed the organs and they em, em, embalmed embalm to keep them from deteriorating in the rest of the body. They They would put spices on the body and on, on, on the, the wrappings, and they would wrap the bottom part, the legs together, and they would, the, the face is simply covered by a napkin. And so, he's raised to life, and there he is all bound up. The napkin can come off easily, but he's bound up. So, I don't know. Children, have you ever been in a sack race? If you don't know a sack race, we need to have a sack race, so you can really maybe understand possibly what happened here. You know, if you're in a sack and you're racing one another in the sack race, you, you know, you you can't walk in a sack. So maybe he hopped to the to the entrance, or maybe supernaturally, when he was raised from the dead, he was just brought by the power of God to the entrance. This is what I suspect, but I, I, I just won't know until I'm in heaven and can ask. But it happened. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. I'm so glad he said that in my heart, loose him and let him go. Now, what happened with this sign? Well, if you read on, For example, just in verses 45 and 46, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, you see, of no good purpose, that's what you have to understand, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, and the remainder of the passage speaks of this sign causing division. Why do we think that we can be friends with the world? Because everywhere the true gospel goes, it causes division. Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. He came to bring that division. And the Jews now, as we read on in verse 45 to the end of the chapter, are thoroughly committed to his death. Caiaphas actually says, he prophesies as high priest that year, though he did not know he was prophesying, that someone must be substituted for the nation. And so there is faith or antagonism, one or the other, faith or disbelief, faith or antagonism. These are the responses to the gospel message, never neutrality. Now let's take these thoughts and themes that we have seen in this wonderful rich passage, and let me make a fourth point. The sign points to three resurrection realities, three resurrection realities, The raising of Lazarus was not a permanent resurrection. It was a resuscitation to life, a sign pointing to something greater. To what does this sign, it's one of the signs in John's Gospel, this being the final sign before Jesus goes to the cross and is himself raised, to what then does this sign point? Well, it points first and foremost to Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Jesus anticipates Easter so to speak. Jesus can raise Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. And this leads to the cross, verses 45 to 53, the determination to kill him. He allows himself to be taken to the cross so that he might be a sacrifice for our sins. And after the cross, Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection appearances, one notable feature of the resurrection appearances is that it stresses the senses. Thomas, for example, sees Christ, and he says, my Lord and my God. When we recite the creed together, we recite the third day he rose again from the dead. This is solid history. We're not saying he rose in some kind of phantom body. This is the real, genuine, historical resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. The same body that was placed in the tomb was raised from the tomb. Yes, a resurrection body, but continuity, the same body raised from the tomb, only with a body now that will never perish. And the raising of Lazarus was a sign of something far greater. Than the resurrection of Lazarus. It was the promise that this Savior, who is the resurrection and the life, after going to the cross, would himself be raised from the dead, just as he told his disciples he would. And then, this resurrection of Lazarus, being a sign of resurrection, also points to our present union with the risen Christ. We were spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of life. Our wills were bound. We had no desire for God. And God took the truth of His Word, the Holy Spirit granted saving faith, and we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He raised us from spiritual death. Again, John five twenty five, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Yes, now, raised within by the almighty power of resurrection, the same resurrection power. Paul tells us in Ephesians two and other places that raised Jesus from the dead has raised us already in union with Christ. Romans six four. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, so that our walk in Christ daily is in resurrection life, and we who fellowship with God through the risen Christ are alive with that resurrection life. You see, we can't forget that we we are supernaturalists. We confess a supernatural salvation. B.B. Warfield came to mind as I was reading this text. His fine essay on Christian supernaturalism. And and a part of it, he says this. It is upon the field of the dead. Listen, it is upon the field of the dead that the Son of Righteousness has risen. And the shouts that announce His advent fall on deaf ears. Yes, even though the morning stars should again sing for joy and the air be palpitant with the echo of the great proclamation, their voice could not penetrate the ears of the dead. In vain the redemption, in vain its proclamation, unless here come a breath from heaven to breathe upon these slain that they may live. The dead soul needs animation, resurrection regeneration, recreation. We don't simply need the old man that is kind of improved. No, there must be a recreation in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that in the effectual call with a power that is that power which raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that when the gospel is preached, people come to faith in Christ. Now, in his own time, in his own way, one man, one man sows, another waters. God gives the increase, but his people will be brought to himself. He will raise the dead to life. So there is Ezekiel that stands in a cemetery. Uh, Son of man, can these bones live? Thou alone knowest, Lord. You know the, the passage. And it is the breath of God that brings the bones and sinews to life and breathes into them and they are raised up, this is what he does. When the minister of the gospel may preach in the cemetery, yet the dead are raised. But not only do we find here that this is a sign of the resurrection of Jesus, first and foremost of our spiritual resurrection in Christ, we may not minimize without being Gnostic we may not minis- minimize our resurrection as believers from the grave is also signed in this great sign at the tomb of Lazarus. 1 Corinthians 15:20 But in fact Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus comes again he will empty the graves. And our future resurrection as believers has already begun in Jesus' own resurrection as firstfruits. And in First Thessalonians 4, when we are told that the dead in Christ shall rise, the body of the Christian, not only the soul, is united to Christ when that body is laid in the grave. He died for the body as well as for the soul, for the whole person. And so, the whole person must live again. The whole person, the body and soul that is in heaven, that soul will be reunited with the body after the fashion of Christ's own glorious eternal resurrection body on the last day. Do you believe this? Does this control your thinking? Does it control your living? There's Young people, there's an emphasis among youth today to dichotomize body and soul and to speak of the body as just a kind of suit, a flesh suit that is dispensable. That's one of the reasons we have some of the horrible aberrations that we have in sexual ethics today because if that's what the body is and that's all it is, Well, you can see where that can lead. No, it's not just a flesh suit. Jesus gave you your body, died for your body, rose for your body. You, the whole you, you are in union with Christ. And so the risen Savior will come again, and when He comes again, He will come in glorious majesty, and the graves will give up their dead, and the sea will give up its dead, and the cathedral tombs will be opened, and those long-buried fathers, mothers, and children will be reunited, and we shall see Him as He is, and we shall be like Him when we see Him as He is. Jesus lives, and so shall I. So, all of this is united with the truth of Jesus' resurrection, with the sign of John 11 as a wonderful pointer to His resurrection and to these truths. It was impossible for the grave to hold Him. Now, next week... Dr. Barrett in the morning will focus on the crucifixion in Mark's gospel, and then we will have Good Friday, and we will focus again on atonement and the death of Christ, and remember that the cross must precede the crown. But before going to the cross, the last sign before going to the cross, Jesus, through the sign of raising Lazarus pointed already to the empty tomb. And so let us not live as though we are on the pre-resurrection side of the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus is not in a grave. He is risen just as he said. Amen.